Hello, and welcome to the podcast of the Believer's Bible Class, a part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Each week we share the Bible lesson from our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. Doug has studied the biblical scriptures throughout life and is knowledgeable in both ancient Greek and Hebrew, which makes his explanations of scripture all the more interesting and most certainly all the more accurate. Professionally, Doug is an attorney, although he considers his Bible teaching as his godly profession. We are continuing with our short series titled, Elijah, a Man of Conviction. And for today's lesson, class teacher Doug Brady has titled it, Neboeth and His Vineyard. Up to this time, God had a plan for dealing with and delivering his depressed and dulled prophet. He has given assignments to accomplish, and he has completed them. And then God gives the land peace in spite of the wicked king and queen. And then there arises the question of the vineyard. The Believer's Bible Class is part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Our class meets every Sunday morning at 9.15 in Lavorne Hall, located on the lower level of the new Worship Center building. Each week, we enjoy meeting many visitors who come to our class, and we hope to see you there at some time. Well, I see Doug is at the podium ready to begin the lesson, so let's go into the classroom, find a seat, open our Bible to 1 Kings chapter 21. Here now is our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. We have been studying the man Elijah, and we've been studying him because he lived in a world that used to be godly. His nation was godly, and then it turned pagan. Now, could that be something that could interest us? Since we live in a nation that once was godly and is now turned pagan, and there is no question that the United States of America is no longer a Christian nation, but it is a pagan nation. And in fact, I believe the statistics show that the number one religion in our country is a disbelief in any religion. Now, you know, the Supreme Court wants to tell you, oh, well, that's neutral. That's not neutral. That's anti-God. And so that's what we are facing. Now, God raised up this man. We don't know exactly what he was doing before we see him in chapter uh, 17, but he lived in Tishbe. He was known simply as a Tishbite, and Elijah came onto the scene. God had been working on him, and he had been studying the scriptures. How do we know that? Because he's quoting the scriptures to Ahab the first time he shows up. Now, God spent a great deal of time softening sharpening, forming, then hardening, and then honing to make this man just the right kind of instrument for what God wanted. But then he ran into a woman, Jezebel. (laughs) We're going to talk about that a little bit later, the effects of women on men. (laughs) Now, you laugh like I'm going to say something negative. But for an Amalekite, that was a pretty sharp reply. Now, one of the things I want you to see is 
What happened to Elijah is he became dulled. God's instrument was dulled. He was dulled by discouragement. He was dulled by dejection. He was dulled by depression. Now, I want you to think about this just a second. You don't have to answer if you want to, but if you want to, I want you to raise your hand. How many in here have ever been discouraged? Raise your hand. Well, I don't see any hands down, except the ones who aren't listening. Uh, Number two, how many of you have ever felt dejection? Raise your hand. How many of you have ever had to deal with depression in your life or in a close friend? It's just all over. These are Satan's tools to dull you, to make you ineffective, to take you away from the mission that God has for you. You say, well, no, wait, I don't have a mission. Uh, Yes, you do. There's only two questions. Either you're not doing it, if you say that, or you don't know what it is yet. Do you think God would like to tell you what your mission is? I imagine so. All you have to do is ask and ask fervently and consistently, and he will. Now, God has spent about five years now retooling Elijah. There's been several wars that have occurred in his country. It took that time in God's judgment before Elijah was ready to be used again. Have you ever felt as if you've kind of just been put to the side for a while and God doesn't want to use you? It's not that he doesn't want to use you. It's that he is retooling you. You know, we think waiting sometimes is wasted time. Not in God's mind. He's all about doing things while we're waiting. And it took that time in God's judgment before he was ready. Now, God had a plan for dealing with and delivering his depressed and dulled prophet. You remember he gave him certain assignments that would be fairly easy for him to uh, satisfy. But when he did, it gave him a sense of accomplishment. And that helped bring him out of his depression. He was given a successor to mentor and to teach. And that's progressing nicely now, but it also helped to bring him out of his depression. I can remember how God used that in my life. You see, there were in this class when I was teaching, but I was going through that dark time in my life, a couple of, uh, several couples who said, you know, you need to resign and you need to quit teaching while you're going through this time. And I can remember we were over in the 505 building. I I told them, I said, now listen, I'm not going to do that on my own. If the church wants me to resign, I will. If the class, which called me to teach, the class called me. I wasn't assigned there. The class called me to teach. Then then I will. And evidently, they sent word to the church that I should resign during that time period in the midst of that depression. And one Sunday morning over in 505, I was just starting to teach when those black doors burst open and in walked Mac Brunson. He said, sit down right here. You want him to resign? He's better now than he's ever been. We need to pray for this man. Do you see the effect of discouragement? Do you see the effect on depression things like that have when a mentor comes and lifts you up? And that's exactly what's going on in this prophet's life. And now the king hasn't heard from Elijah for a while because God returned him to obscurity. Other prophets were called by God to come and speak to the king in place of Elijah. But Ahab would not turn from Baal to Yahweh, 
Even so, God gave the nation peace for a period of time. And then we come to the question of a vineyard. And today we're going to look at that question of a vineyard. So, let's pray. Father, as we open up your word and we look at your holy scriptures, I pray that you will guide us in just the right direction and help us to understand what's going on. Help us to see how much you love us and how you want to use us. Thank you for being here this morning and having your Holy Spirit here with each of us. May he be the teacher and I just the instrument. And I pray that I'm not too dull. In Jesus' name, I ask these things. Amen. And I want everybody to open their Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. 1 Kings chapter 21, 1 through 3. Now it came about after these things, that is all the things that have been going on in, in Elijah's life, that Naboth the Jezreelite, Naboth the Jezreelite, where was the second home of these people? Where was the second home for Jezebel and Ahab? Jezreel. This man lived in Jezreel. And so he's the Jezreelite. He had a vineyard which was in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. So you understand now, there's his summer palace, so to speak, or maybe it was his winter palace. I don't know, but it was the second one. Right next to it was this vineyard that Naboth had. And Ahab spoke to Naboth saying, give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden because it is close by my house. And I will give you a better vineyard than it in its place if you like. Or if you like, I will give you the price of it in money. So what happened? Naboth, I mean, Ahab has this palace. Right next to it's this vineyard. He wants that vineyard for a vegetable garden. He wants to be able to grow herbs and fresh vegetables so his, his executive chef can go out there and gather the fresh produce and make him wonderful meals. So he comes to Naboth and he says, listen, I would really like to acquire your vineyard. I have a number of vineyards, many of which are better than yours. I'll trade you. Or if you prefer, I'll give you money for your vineyard. Just tell me. Is there anything wrong with that? What? Well, he getting fed by that garden anyway. That's one thing. And the other thing is wrong, that any man who has a lot, men will desire it. And they'll try to get it from you. That's just the way life is. But what if you're willing to give them a fair price for it? He's not making him do it. He's making an offer. You don't do business with Satan. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forgive me that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. Now, asking for the sale, there's nothing wrong with that. But the wrong would be on Naboth's part because they not, the scriptures provide something different. In Leviticus 25, starting in verse 23, it says this, The land, moreover, shall not be sold permanently. For the land is mine. Now what is he saying? You don't really own this land. I do. Now wait a second. Does that have anything to say about geopolitics in the Middle East right now? You know, it's interesting. 
Islam says that that land over there belongs to Allah. The Bible says it belongs to Yahweh. Who's right? Who should have to forfeit that land and give it to the real owner? And for the land is mine. For you are but aliens and sojourners with me. Thus for every piece of your property you are to provide for the redemption of the land. If a fellow countryman of yours becomes so poor that he has to sell part of his property, then his nearest kinsman is to come and buy it back what his relative has sold. Or in the case of a man who has no kinsman, but so recovers his means, is able to find sufficient for its redemption. So if they sell the land, and then they get enough money to buy it back, they have the right to buy it back from you. You can't say, well, no, not deal's a deal. Can't do that. And then he will calculate the years since its sale and refund to him the balance. But if he has not found sufficient means to give it back for himself, then what he has sold shall remain in the hands of the purchaser until the year of Jubilee. But at Jubilee it shall revert that he may return to his property. So if I owned a tract of land, and let's say that uh, Steve comes and he wants to buy it from me, I can say, sure, I'll sell it to you even though it's my family's land, but every 50 years there's a jubilee. And if we're 40 years into that 50-year period, he only gets to keep the land for 10 years, and then it comes back to me. And that's the way he set it up. Now, somebody could buy it back earlier if they're willing to pay the redemption price. But God, why would God do that? He says, I don't want one or two landowners to own everything. I want the land spread out. I want every person to own their own land. So, here we go. That's the thing. This, this same concept is spoken again in Numbers chapter 36 where it says, Thus no inheritance of the sons of Israel shall be transferred from tribe to tribe. For the sons of Israel shall each hold to the inheritance of the tribe of his fathers. Thus no inheritance shall be transferred from one tribe to another. For the tribes of the sons of Israel shall each own. So what could Naboth have done? He would have to tell him, I can't sell it. God doesn't want me to. So now we see the bad part of Ahab. Verse 4, so Ahab came into his house sullen and vexed because of the word which Naboth the Jezreelite had spoken to him. For he said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed, turned away his face, and ate no food. David, how would you describe this king? Spoiled child. I mean, is, can you find a better explanation or description of a spoiled child? That's what he is. Now, one thing you have to understand that's going to be important here to see. He grew up in a constitutional monarchy. You see, there was, he's king... But there's laws in the scripture, that, and one of the things is, king just can't do whatever he wants. He has to follow those laws. That was his culture. His wife, on the other hand, grew up in not a constitutional monarchy, but an absolute despot. King could do whatever they wanted. And that's the deal. And now we're talking about the three primary characters in this tale. Let's go back and look at them very quickly. The first one is Ahab. The sullen, vexed child, spoiled, who, who goes and pouts. Then we're talking about his, this man who owns the vineyard right next to his palace. 
and that is Naboth. And then the principal evil here in this story, Jezebel. I don't know if that was taken with a Polaroid or what, but uh, that's Jezebel, and she is the wicked one. And then we're going to see this man. Obviously, Julie's been talking to Jerry. Don't leave that picture on very long. Uh, But this is Elijah, and that's the man who's going to enter in scene two of this event. So let's see what happens here and what's going to go on. But I want you to notice this one more thing, this sullen, vexed child who's king. King's supposed to be a leader of the country. Is Ahab fit to be a leader of the country? He's supposed to be the leader of his family. First of all, is he the leader of his family? No. And is he fit to be? No. And if you can't manage your family, how can you manage a nation? I could say, if you make arrangements to kill your wife and possibly injure your children and marry the babysitter... How can you manage a, a nation? Now, I, I just, that's, I'm sure that's just a rumor. And Julie, do you believe it's a rumor? Uh, yeah. But we'll, we'll move on. I'm not naming any names. We're moving on to 1 Kings chapter 21, verse 5. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, How is it that your spirit is so sullen that you are not eating food? So he said to her, because I spoke to Naboth, the Jezreelite, and said to him, give me your vineyard for money, or else if it pleases you, I'll give you a vineyard in its place. But he said, I will not give you my vineyard. And Jezebel's wife said to him, do you not reign over Israel? Do you see her background culture? You're the king. You can do whatever you want. You don't reign over Israel. Arise, eat bread, and let your heart be joyful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters uh, in Ahab's name, sealed them with his seal, sent letters to the elders and to the nobles who were living with Naboth in the city. Now, now wait, how did he have access to uh, having his name on these letters and using his seal? Well, she'd been doing that for a long time. Believe me. So she wrote in the letters saying, proclaim a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people. Seat two worthless men before him and let them testify against him, saying, you curse God and the king, and then take him out and stone him to death. Now, interesting. Have you ever heard of a plan like that since? Two worthless people to testify about somebody and take him out, but instead of stoning him, you crucify him? Ah, Satan's plans don't change that much. His schemes stay the same. Why? That's why we need an attorney, everyone. (laughs) The fact is, he keeps using the same schemes because they work. So we see the cultural differences here between the two. And there is one thing in scriptures, I think it's taught over and over. And I told you I was going to tell you about this, and I'm going to. They, the scriptures consistently teach this. Number one, there is no one who can inspire a man to more noble purposes like a godly, faithful woman. No one. But number two, and there is no one who can degrade a man more than a wife of unworthy character who refuses to let God to control her life. And I don't think there's anybody in this class who hadn't seen evidence of both of those events. 
I can stand here and tell you I have seen the first one in my life for the last 11 years, and it's been wonderful. Now, I want you to see something else that the Scripture is teaching, and that is this. The spiritual life of a nation, a state, a community, a social group, or even a home never rises higher than the spiritual commitment of the women who inhabit them. If you look in the history books, there has been a number of revivals in our nation. Who populated the prayer rooms that brought about those revivals? Women. Sometimes men are too busy to pray. Now that's foolish and no excuse at all, but we need to understand that. Don? It's interesting to pay attention to all these cults and uh, false religions that start up, how many of them, a percentage of them, that are based with women. Female protagonists to start with. Mark? You're right. Interesting how God uses the insightful heart of a female. Now, let's move to 1 Kings 21.11. So the men of the city and the elders and the nobles who lived in the city did as Jezebel had sent word to them, just as it was written in the letters that she had sent them. And they proclaimed a fast and seated Naboth at the head of the people. Then the two worthless men came in and sat before him, and the worthless men testified against him, even against Naboth, before the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. And then they sent word to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned and is dead. And when Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive but dead. Notice, all the elders, all the nobles in that town, to a man, were ready to compromise in order to please Jezebel, or because they were scared of Jezebel. Once again, wickedness is reigning in Ahab's kingdom. I imagine that most of the citizens and elders, they knew the truth about what those worthless guys were saying. But they chose to look the other way. Now, I want you to see this because this is a principle that is very, very important for us to understand. I want you, most of you can do this, I think. I want you to go back, put yourself in the period between 1955 and 1960. And let's say that a Supreme Court decision came out during this time that a woman who wanted to, who was pregnant, could kill her child. And if two men wanted to get married, they could get married. How would the people in our nation have responded to that? Outrage. There would have been marches. There would have been movements for impeachment of Supreme Court judges. There would have been all kinds of things breaking loose. And it's because of of this principle we see it now. When you live long enough under the influence of immoral, unethical, and idolatrous leadership, you're no longer outraged at what they do. And the people of this nation, their conscience has been seared. They had in Israel at the time of Elijah. One of the reasons why evil is allowed to reign is because she had run old Elijah out of town. And the people thought, if Elijah can't stand up to her, what can we do? Not a bad argument. 
Here's a guy who can call down fire, and yet he runs from her. He was the only one who they might have thought would have had a chance to stand up to her. Now, some people would say, if they're a student of the Old Testament law, oh, wait a second. Yeah, he got the vineyard now, but at the Jubilee, it'll go back to his sons. They would inherit it. What do you think Jezebel did? Killed the sons? You could find that in 2 Kings 9.26 if you want to look that up. So the property now reverted to the crown. And when Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, he arose to go down to his vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, to take possession of it. Now, sometimes we need to stop and ask ourselves a question because this question's in the bottom of our heart and when events like this happen. What is God doing that he would allow this good man who seeks only to obey him to be killed like that together with his sons? What is God doing? I think sometimes we have to think about this from this perspective. When Naboth was stoned to death, what happened to him? No, he didn't go to heaven. Where did he go, Damaris? He went to the bosom of Abraham, the paradise side of Hades. In in Elijah's time, it would have been called Sheol. That's the Hebrew word for the place of the departed dead. There's two sections, the side of torments and the side of paradise. I'm convinced that when Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise, he's talking about Hades. Why? Well, why is Jesus in Hades? Because he's going down there to take everyone who was there up to heaven with him. Some people want to say no paradise means heaven. I think it means Abraham's bosom, but you are free to study the scriptures and make your own decision. So the property is now reverted. The sons are dead. And in verse 16, and when Ahab heard that, he went down and took possession. So God had a plan. Sometimes, you know, it's not as final as death. I mean, don't you remember Joseph? He's doing really well in Potiphar's house. And the wife tries to get him to commit adultery. And he runs away. He obeys completely. And he gets thrown in prison. You know, You think, well, okay, he's in prison, but not that long. You ever been in an Egyptian prison? You know, didn't this event position worshipers of Baal to say the same things about Yahweh that Elijah had said about Baal on Mount Carmel? He can't take care of his people. Look what happens. This man was completely innocent. Baal seems to be winning the day here. And from a human perspective, the answer is, yeah, that's true. It's the way it seems. Yes. Um, can I read a verse if you don't mind? It's out of Isaiah 57. All right, read. It says, The righteous man perishes, but no man takes it to heart. The devout men are taken away while no one understands. He enters into peace. They rest in their beds, each one who walked in an upright way. God took him away from He did. He was living in a very evil place. And if you could have interviewed Naboth down in paradise, and you say, okay, Naboth, I'll tell you what, you can either go back or you can stay here. What do you think he's going to say? Hey, I got my sons here. We're doing great. I'll stay. Here, I get to talk to Abraham. I get to talk to uh, Enoch. No, not Enoch. Enoch's in heaven. I get to talk to Abraham. I get to talk to Noah. I get to talk to Job. Jesus is not there yet in Hades. He's coming after his crucifixion. 
So, Ahab is about to learn something, though. And it's an important lesson for all of us to see. He's about to learn that sin buys pleasure at a price. And that Satan always repays his debts in counterfeit currency. And so, in verse 17, it says, Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. That hasn't happened since he came out. I take it back. It happened in uh, chapter 18, verse 1, where he said, now it's time for rain. First it happened as he was leaving the palace, and he was told to go hide in the brook Cherith. Then God told him to go up to Zarephath, and now he said, now it's time for rain. But it's been a little over five years. No word of the Lord is recorded as having come to Elijah, but it has now. The tool is ready. He's, God's instrument now has been prepared again. And saying, Arise, go down and meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. And behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone down to take possession of it. Now notice, these two stories overlap. We've seen the story carrying through to, Na- to Ahab going down into the vineyard. Then we have to go back in time. God's spoken to Elijah, and he's bringing him to that vineyard the same time that, that Ahab goes down there to take possession of it. And so he's taking possession of it. He says, Arise, go down, and meet Ahab, who's gone to take possession of it. And you shall speak to him, saying, Thus says Yahweh, Have you murdered and also taken possession? And you shall speak to him, saying, Thus says Yahweh, In the place where the dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, the dogs will lick up your blood, even yours. And Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? And he answered, I have found you, because you have sold yourself to do evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, I want you to see this just a second. That phrase, you're going to see it again here in the last part of this passage. There's a word where you can sell yourself into slavery to pay off a debt. And that is, in effect, what... Elijah is telling Ahab that he has done. He has sold himself into slavery to evil. And he is now evil's slave. Behold, I will bring evil upon you and you will will utterly sweep you away. And I will cut off from Ahab every male, both bond and free in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Like the house of Basha, the, the son of Ahijah. Because of the provocation with which you have provoked me to anger. And because you have made Israel sin. Of Jezebel also the Lord, has the Lord spoken saying the dogs will eat Jezebel in the district of Jezreel. And the one belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dogs will eat. And the one who dies in the field, the birds of heaven will eat. Surely there will be no one like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel, his wife, incited him. And he acted very abominably in following idols according to all that the Amorites had done when the Lord cast, whom the Lord cast out before the sons of Israel. That would be something that would be rather numbing to hear being said about you and your family. Now wait, what does it say about the family, his family? Every male is going to die, free or slave. His family 
unit is going to die. Why would they say slaves? Because slaves inherit, chief slave would inherit from the, the man if there are no male sons. Remember with Abraham? And so they do that. And it's interesting, this verb here, cell, is hithpael, stem, meaning it's reflexive. The action is being done on the subject, by the subject. He's selling himself. It carries the idea of trafficking in wickedness. And God brings this about. Now look for just a second at Ecclesiastes 8.11. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, therefore the hearts of the sons of men among them are given fully to do evil. Is that a wise saying by Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes? Yes, it is. Was this occurring in Israel at the time of Elijah? Was this occurring in Israel at the time of Jesus? Was this occurring, is this occurring in our time? You know, if when you, did you know that in our nation, adultery used to be a crime? Do you think there'd be a difference in our nation now if adultery still carried the death penalty? You know, it's interesting, in the state of Texas, they used to have a cause of action that you could file called alienation of affection. It was a civil cause of action, not a criminal. I was one of one of the last attorneys to file a, call, a lawsuit based upon alienation of affection before the Supreme Court said, no, we're not recognizing that as a cause of action in our state anymore. Or you could sue the one who had seduced your wife or husband, and recover damages. Maybe even get injunctive relief. Now, that's going on in our nation. Now, here's a question. I remember teaching this to some young men once, this same provision here, and the first question they had was, when's he going to do it? When do we get to see what happens to Ahab and Jezebel and how they get killed? So we're going to have to wait a while. Why? Why do we have to wait? Let's see it now. Why did God wait? You're absolutely right. Now, in almost every time I read that, does that happen when he gives them time? He gave them 120 years in the time of Noah. Did it happen? No. So, it's certainly not going to happen now. But let's, let's look at verse 27. And it came about when Ahab heard these words that he tore his clothes. And he put on sackcloth and he fasted. And he lay in sackcloth and went about despondently. And then the word of Yahweh came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, Do you see how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the evil in his day, but I will bring the evil upon his house in his son's days. Now, I think we need to ask ourselves a very important question here, and we need to come to understand it. And that is this. Has Ahab turned to God and become a true believer? I don't think so. But has he shown respect for God and humbled himself before God? And God rewards that. If you can say now, he said, this is going to happen. We don't know exactly when he was going to die, prior, but now, and his family die, and everybody be cut off. Now God says, I'm going to wait until after you're dead to do this. And it will be interesting to see 
the vacillating nature of Ahab is complex and difficult to grasp. He could all too easily be led into wickedness by his wife Jezebel, but at other times he could display real humility to the Lord God. But unfortunately, I don't believe he ever entered into a genuine spiritual relationship with the one true God, and as a result, he would perish. Now, during the time that God's waiting, could he turn his heart if he chose? I want you to understand something. There is no created being who doesn't have the right to change their position towards God and turn their hearts to him except one set, fallen angels. Every other created being always has that opportunity until they die or become non-compass menace and therefore can't make such a decision. And so we need to see and understand that. And you see that. So the first question I want to ask before we, we end today is this. What level are you at? Has he tested you and now is ready to put you to use? Are you ready for God to use you? Have you been prepared? Or is he still in the honing and hardening process? Or could it be that you've refused to go into the furnace? You've refused to put yourself on the anvil where his hammer will shape you. What positions are you in in your life? If you are truly a child of God, he will never cast you out of his family. Never. But if you stubbornly refuse to obey him, he will bring ever-increasing discipline your way, just the way he did with Jonah. He loves you too much to ignore an active rebellion in your life or a passive indifference to God's will for you. We need to understand, though, what is going on in our lives. Because God's patience with us, if we have turned our back on Him, is like a clock that's ticking. And when His patience ticks away, we need to understand what's coming. Problem is, as that clock is ticking, we continue to make excuses. Well, I'm just not ready yet. I'm going to, but not or we will compare ourselves to others and say, you know what? I'm doing much better than him. Or I'm accomplishing much more than her. So God can't be too unhappy with me. Or we choose to procrastinate. Putting off what we know we must do. All the while promising, well, I'll get to it eventually. We must come to learn that excuses, comparisons, procrastination are some of the devil's most effective instruments of destruction. Some of the most effective instruments of destruction. It's kind of like a very large anaconda, a boa constrictor that starts winding himself. You know, I can still breathe okay. Well, you know what? I'm having a little trouble breathing here, but I can still get enough breath to get by. <laughs> you know, those things are going to destroy you. So we must remind ourselves of this. There is an end to the patience of God. It's just that no one knows when it will come. But there is an end. There's an end for you. There's an end for your family. There's an end for our nation. There's an end for this world. And it's coming. You can be assured of it. And we don't know how long we have. Number two, we know that God will always keep His word. And no one will be able to stop it from coming into fruition. Now, let's talk about two groups of people real quick.
before we finish. First of all, God will always keep his word to the unbeliever. Well, wait. Has he made any promises to the unbeliever that are good? Yes. He says, if you will recognize that I love you, and then I've got a plan for your life. But you have to recognize also that you are a sinner. You have sold yourself to sin. And because of that, you are separated from me forever. But that, I sent my son to die for you. And if you receive him as your savior, he will come in and save you. And you won't be separated from me any longer. Just like it says in Revelation 3.20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man will open the door to me, I will come in. What does it say he won't do there? He doesn't open the door himself. You have to open the door. That's why in John 1.12 it says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even those who believe on his name. That's the promise to the unbeliever. The other promise to the unbeliever is, if you don't, you're going to hell forever. That tends to me, sound to me like a very sobering promise. But he's also made promises to believers. I love you, but if you disobey me, I will discipline you. And I will continue to discipline you and turn up the heat until you finally turn around. If we're making excuses if we're making comparisons, if we're procrastinating, we better learn we will be hurt ourselves and we'll also cause pain to those around us where life can be full of joy and peace and forgiveness. Close in a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for the time that we could visit Navis Vineyard. We can see how you took this good man and his son's home. I thank you that you have retooled the lights and he is back in the fight and that he's able to address. You've used your words through him to humble Ahab. Father, if I didn't know what would happen, I would pray that moreover he would come to know you personally. And yet I know that's not going to happen. But Father, help us to understand there's people we come in contact with on a consistent basis who need you more than anything else in life. Help us to be willing to share your love and forgiveness with them. Father, you know how badly our nation is embroiled in sin. You know the ugliness of our wickedness more than we do ourselves. And I know that there has to be a corporate stench coming up to your nostrils because of what we have done and the height from which we have fallen. But I pray you bring up a band of intercessors for our nation, praying for revival, and that I can be among them and that we can pray faithfully that you bring our nation back to you. That you raise up prophets in our nation who are willing to unashamedly and boldly, without compromise, speak out and say, that is sin and God will judge if you don't turn. May it have the same effect on our people just like it had on Ahab. But then, Father, you will follow that up with a band of evangelists who will find those people who have humbled their hearts and tell them how they can enter into a personal relationship with the Son of God. I pray that you will do this in our nation. We need it so badly so that we can once again be a beacon to the rest of the world as to your love and forgiveness. Now I pray these things in Jesus' name and in the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.